So, we're still uh, in Joshua, Joshua chapter 6, a famous passage, all about walls. Tried building a wall this morning. <clears throat> thought, these bricks, too, too, too difficult to resist. I thought, if I built it high enough, I could preach the sermon from behind the wall. You wouldn't have to look at me. I wouldn't have to look at you. Probably better for you, right? But gave up on that. It was getting a bit wobbly. But when we uh, come to this famous passage, uh, it's a passage that occurred nearly three and a half thousand years ago. It's a story in the Bible that we probably don't really think about. It's something we feel quite disconnected from. What's it got to do with us? What has it got to do with us? That some walls fell down thousands of years ago. What's it got to do with me? Why is it even in the Bible? So I thought before we get into this, let's by way of introduction, just do a little bit, five minutes of Old Testament history. Step back and remind ourselves of how we got here and also what comes next in the Old Testament. So some of you may know this very well, some of you may not. There is another issue, a parallel issue, which I could have talked about by way of introduction, which is why is there so much violence in Joshua? Joshua is a very violent book. It's a barbaric book in some ways. Uh, and actually, I'm gonna, not going to talk about that because Jonathan talked about it a couple of weeks ago, but also in your house groups this week, that is a big question that you will come across. And there are questions on this. Why is there so much violence? How does that make us feel as Christians? And also, what about people who are not Christians who come to the Bible? You may have seen Richard Dawkins' famous statement from more than 10 years ago, and I can't remember it, but it was something like, the Old Testament God is the most vindictive, homophobic, racist, ethnic-cleansing, jealous, selfish, nasty, unpleasant character you would ever find. That was his definition, looking at the Old Testament. So we'll look at that at House Groups this week. There'll be some notes and questions, and we can get into that. If you're not in a group, please don't exclude yourself from this discussion. Come and see us about joining a group the support of a group, what you will learn in a group, will really help you. But we will step aside from that and just spend a few minutes looking at the book of Joshua and how we got here. So, let's remind ourselves of some Old Testament stuff. Roughly 2000 BC, it's hard to date things which are so ancient. There's a man called Abraham, and God makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. He says, go to a land that I will show you. A double promise, a two-edged promise. First of all, he says, I will give you more descendants than there are stars in the sky. Secondly, I will give you a land you can call your own. This promise is made to Abraham, to his descendants, uh, Isaac and Jacob. The 12 sons of Jacob eventually, at the end of Genesis, at the beginning of the book of Exodus, end up in Egypt, and they become slaves to Pharaoh. What happened to God's promise? Where is God's promise now? For 400 years, they suffer in Egypt as slaves. Until Moses comes in the book of Exodus, God sends Moses as his servant, and Moses says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says no, and then God sends these ten plagues upon Egypt, one after another after another, until Pharaoh lets them go. And then other miracles happen. The Red Sea miracle, where the sea is divided, we'll come back to that, all in the book of Exodus. And then, the people after leaving Egypt are wandering in the desert now, where's God's promise now? Where's God's promise? Where's your promise, Lord, that we would have a land, that there'd be more of us than stars in the sky? And for 40 years, until everybody who left Egypt is dead, they wander in the desert. And finally, they come across the River Jordan at the edge of this new land, Canaan. And they're looking across this river, 
And God shows them this great city on a hill. It's called Jericho. And that's where we pick up the story today. But let's just uh, look forward as well, because we can do that. We can look back at the whole, whole of the Old Testament. What will come next? There are many chapters of this story to come. So, but let's just look forward. Israel settles in the land. So, uh, Moses and the Exodus are around 1500 BC, something like that. Joshua is about 1400 BC. And Israel settles in the land. They've destroyed Jericho. They've driven out the Canaanites, the Amalekites, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, all these tribes. They settle in the land and they appoint judges. And the book of Judges tells us about Gideon, about Samson, about Deborah, famous judges who rule over Israel. But that's not enough for Israel. They want a king like the other nations have. And so we find in the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, Saul, David and Solomon are the first three kings of Israel who rule over Israel. And at around 1000 BC, uh, Israel is at its peak as a nation, as a civilization, as a religious entity. They're at their peak, uh, ruled over by a man called David who is God's chosen king. We, we know about David, we read about him, don't we? But David f- f- is only a man and he fails, and the whole of Israel fails. And finally we see, at the end of 1 and 2 Samuel, as we go into the books of kings, Israel breaks into two, a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. They don't agree, they disagree, they fall out. This carries on, there are many kings in the books of kings. Each one, <clears throat> pretty much, almost exclusively, a bigger failure than the previous one each one tyrannical, despotic in his own way, ruling over this land, this nation. Where is God's promise now? Finally, around 720 BC, God sends the empire of that day, the Assyrian Empire, of which the capital is Nineveh, which we've heard about. God sends the Assyrians to scatter the northern kingdom, and they are scattered across all different lands. So then the the focus of the Old Testament shifts to the southern kingdom, to Israel, Judah and Israel. What will happen to this nation now, just in the south? Well, the southern kingdom also, they are invaded by the next empire after the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the the, uh, ruler of which is Nebuchadnezzar. And uh, we read about this in uh, the book, uh, Isaiah and Jeremiah warn the southern kingdom time after time after time, this is what's going to happen. But the southern kingdom don't pay attention. And so around 590 BC, uh, Nebuchadnezzar invades the southern kingdom, and takes them all to Babylon. And we read about that, particularly the book of Daniel. What, what is life like in Babylon? What is life like for them? Where is God's promise about having a land of your own, about being a nation greater than the stars of the, in the sky? It all seems to be lost. But God hasn't given up on Israel, even though they gave, give up on him time after time after time. And so around 540 BC, the uh, Babylonians... Uh, wane, their empire wanes, and a new empire comes, the Persian Empire. And a king called Cyrus says to Nehemiah, go back, rebuild your city. I've heard about this. Go and rebuild your walls. And we read, as we've been doing a year ago in Ezra and Nehemiah, the people return to build their walls. So the Old Testament comes to an end with the people who've built their walls, and Israel re-establishes itself as a kingdom under God. Still failing, still doing things wrong, still, one time after time after time, disbelieving in their God, who has, who has actually now fulfilled his promise. They have a land of their own. There are more of them than stars in the sky. And um, the story continues, 
until eventually, in, a, in the most surprising move, God himself will enter the stage of his own story. God himself enters his story. But not as people expect, as a man Jesus, and we read about that in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So this is a continuous story. And why am I telling you this? It's not uh, for the dates or for the history. It's, it's to try and see this episode that we will talk about today. It is one episode in this continuing story. <clears throat> and as Christians, as inheritors of the people of God, this is your story, and this is my story as well. This story that we read about today is another thread in the seamless garment that God weaves from Genesis to Revelation. The story will continue. Your story and my story come into it until eventually God winds things up in Revelation. He's shown us the last chapter of the story. So this is part of that story. So if if this is an integral part of this one continuing story through the Bible, then we should come to this expecting God to speak, expecting that God has something to say to us about this ancient city, Jericho, of which the walls came tumbling down. What is God saying to us then in our story today as we live here in 2017? What is God speaking to us? Let's step into it, but let's pray as we do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that we only see a slice of time. We see our today, we see our this week, and sometimes we forget that you are the Lord of time, that you have woven this story from the very beginning of the universe, and you've already shown us the last chapter at the end of Revelation. And so, Lord, we come to this episode today in a, in a difficult world, a, a world that seems barbaric, that seems cruel. And we ask you, Lord, what is it that you would say to us this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. So, let's read this uh, passage. I don't know if you can read that, but it's in Joshua chapter 6 in your Bibles. I'll read it out to you. It's a well-known passage. Now, the fall of Jericho. When Joshua was near Jericho... Oh, sorry, I'm starting at chapter 6. Right. Now, the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands, along with its king and, and its fighting men. March round the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Make seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march round the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, make the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse. The army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and make seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march round the city with an armed guard going ahead of the Ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forwards, blowing their trumpets. And the Ark of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets and the rear guard followed the Ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you. Then shout. So he had the ark of the Lord carried round the city, circling it once. 
Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forwards, marching before the Ark of the Lord and blowing their trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time round, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout! For the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver, the gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. So when the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. And so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. Men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house, bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers and sisters, all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it. And they put the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men. Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho. And she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua promised Sorry, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath. Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. So it's a very famous story, right? We, we kind of know the story. Remember, Joshua led the battle of Jericho, Jericho. It's been going to my head all week, that. And the walls came. I even, I even watched the VeggieTales version on uh, YouTube. <laughs> That's what came up. Recommended, highly recommended. <clears throat> um, it stands up there, doesn't it, with David and Goliath, Adam and Eve, um, with these very famous stories, Samson and Delilah of the Bible, the walls of Jericho. We know the story, we, we sing it at Sunday school. There is no battle in the Bible as famous as the battle for Jericho. And yet, what do we notice about the battle for Jericho? What do you notice about the battle for Jericho? What's the big thing that we notice about the battle for Jericho? There is no battle. 
The big thing we notice about the battles for Jericho is there is no battle for Jericho. The main, the most important point about the fight for Jericho is there was no fight for Jericho. And the most important thing we learn about the siege of this city was there was no siege of this city. There was no battle, no fight, and no siege. Instead, this story, this account, is not about fighting, it's about God fighting for his people and his people standing in his presence. That's what this is about. Let's step through this and we'll come back to this point about God fighting for his people. So let's just step through the account. There's a lot of verses in that chapter. Basically, soldiers go ahead of the priests, first of all. Then seven priests take seven trumpets and behind them is the ark, the very presence of God. We'll come back to it in a minute. They march around the city every day for six days and on the seventh day, they march around the city seven times. So number seven comes up a lot in this passage. Seven is an important number in the Bible, going right back to seven days of creation. So it is a significant number. We have to be careful not to read too much into numbers. Some people regard the Bible as magic numbers. Uh, even regarding Revelation as some kind of trained timetable you can read numbers from. That, that is not the case, but it is a significant number. Let's just say something about this ark, this thing that they carried round, uh, which, which might seem surprising as well. Some people might look at it and say, what is this kind of God-in-a-box type thing, kind of Jack-in-a-box style? No, it's not that. And again, just uh, stepping through quickly, the presence of God in the Bible changes and moves. Do you notice that? Do you notice that? In Genesis... God walks side by side with Adam. In the cool of the afternoon, God is walking with Adam and Eve, face to face. After the fall, after the sin, God withdraws his personal presence, but he's still present with his people in this, via showing himself via this ornate wooden box within which are the Ten Commandments, the rod of Aaron, and some manna from heaven. So God's presence has changed. God's presence then becomes the box inside a tent, the tent of the Lord's presence. So as the people wander around the desert in tents, God wanders around with them as the people become, no, become nomads. God almost makes himself a nomad in an incarnational way, says, I will be with you in this kind of tent. Later on, when we have the kings of Israel, uh, Solomon will build a temple, and the temple will represent the presence of God in the Bible. It will all be about the temple. And in the temple, there'll be a holy place, and in the, within the holy place, there'll be a most holy place, where, where, where there's a big curtain that nobody can go in, nobody can go through except for one priest on one day of the year. But the, this represents the presence of God at that time. Later on, the presence of God is in the man Jesus on earth. That is the presence of God. It's moved again. God has shifted his presence from, right from Genesis right up to Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And God is now present in the man Jesus. And something very significant happens at the, at the crucifixion where the temple becomes torn in two and then we move to the acts of the apostles and after Pentecost God says now my presence is with anybody who believes by my Holy Spirit I will be present in your hearts which is transformationally different from the Old Testament where God was present in these other ways but right now at this time about 1400 years before Christ God's presence is demonstrated is with his people through this ark so they take that with them. And for them, that's God going with them. They, re- they see that as God is with us. God is going with us. And so, um, 
something remarkable happens. The walls come tumbling down. On the seventh day after the seventh march, when the trumpets blast and the people shout, God demolishes that city. You've really got to see it on VeggieTales to get the full meaning. It's really good when that happens. I love it. So God fulfills his promise to Joshua and to Abraham, the promise that, that said, you know, I, I promised you I would give you as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. I promised you you would have a land of your own. Here is the land that I promised you. And Joshua, remember the, the uh, warning given to Joshua at the start of the book, the instruction was only be strong and courageous. Only be strong and courageous. You won't have to do much else. I will do it. So God has a history of fighting for his people. God has a history of saying to his people, be calm, be disarmed, I will fight for you. Just as at Jericho. So uh, some examples at the Red Sea in Exodus, uh, when the people leave, uh, they flee Egypt as slaves in the, to their freedom and they come across the Red Sea, the ocean is in front of them, the Egyptian army are behind them. And they have that, what I think is the most sarcastic line in the Old Testament, where the people look at Moses and they say, Moses, were, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us into the desert to die? Come on, Moses. Was it not bad enough? Couldn't you have just buried us in Egypt you brought us into the desert to die? And Moses speaks to the Lord and then he turns to the people and he says, stand still, fear not, and see the salvation that God will do today. God, say, as God says through Moses, calm down, be disarmed, see what God will do. Similarly, Gideon and the Midianites in Judges, we mentioned him, um, he wants to take on the Midianites, God tells him to defeat them. And uh, Gideon gathers, gathers an army of thousands and God says, that's too many, you've got too many people in your army. If you win, you'll think you did it and you'll also probably not win if you just go against the Midianites with your army. So God says, anybody who trembles, anybody who's trembling, go home. And God says, anybody who I choose will go home. And God says, anybody who drinks water out of a stream in a certain way, go home. And so Gideon only has 300 men, which is nowhere near enough to take on an army of thousands. And they don't fight. They also have trumpets and lights. God says, calm down, disarm, and see what I will do. And even with David and Goliath, David is told, no armour, no sword, be disarmed, be calm, see what I will do. And even, perhaps most surprisingly, as the Son of God walks to a Roman cross, we see this same idea of a God who calmly disarms himself. Jesus said, I could bring down 12 legions of angels right now. Don't you know that? But here I am. I will be calm, I will be disarmed and yet a battle will certainly be won not in the way we expect but a battle will be won on that day so God has a history of fighting for his people and God has a history of saying stand in my strength, not in your own if you stand in your own strength you'll struggle, you'll probably fail stand in my strength locate your sufficiency, your strength not in yourself but in me and see what I will do Pattern repeats then throughout the Bible. And ancient Israel takes the city with no calculated attack, no military might, no strategy, no generals were leading this army. 
They just were obedient. God said, go around the city and worship me with trumpets. Be obedient, even if you don't feel like it. Maybe that's what a sacrifice of praise is about, even when we don't feel like it. Obediently bringing our worship to God. In obedience, whether they felt like it or not. Bit weird, yeah, bit embarrassing, probably. Um, I don't know, Joshua doesn't tell us, but the people on the walls of Jericho probably thought this was hilarious. These guys just don't give up. Here they are marching around the city on the third day, the fourth day. Have you seen this? And here are, here are we on our 15-foot-high wall, three-foot-thick, watching these guys walking around with their trumpets. It's quite funny. Maybe the Israelites, I don't know. Maybe they felt it difficult. Sometimes we find it difficult when God says, do something, and we don't understand why. And I imagine they probably said, well, we've got weapons. We've got battering rams. We've got ladders. We've got arrows. We've got spears. Why are we here with trumpets? But they did it obediently. Calm and disarmed, they did what God said, told them to do. Be calm, be disarmed, and see what I will do. So, just to repeat, the most important part of this story, the most important part of the story of Jericho, to remember always, is the part that isn't there. There was no physical fight. There was no war, actually. There was no military battle. Calmly and disarmed, the people took the city. So let's look at that idea then, and about what God will be, is saying to us. Because if this, this is an idea that repeats through the Bible, and we've seen that it does, even Jesus calmly disarming himself, it must be a lesson for us today. It's not just something that happened 1400 BC once. Disarm yourself and see what I will do. Sometimes God needs to disarm us, doesn't he? Disarm us because we have our own ideas, our own words, our own battles, our own arguments, our own ways of coming at people, of coming at situations. And God says, I want you to just disarm yourself because you can't think about me when you're all tooled up for battle in this way. Being disarmed and relying on God teaches us dependence, trust, faith. Sometimes God needs to educate us. Stop struggling in your own strength. Some of you were here a few weeks ago when I talked about what happened in my past. And uh, God, uh, and I was very self-reliant, very self-confident in my own abilities, my own strengths, what I could do. And God put me in a situation in a developing country where there was no Christian and no church in thousands of square miles. And God said, had to say to me, well, cope with that then. You who can cope with everything, cope with that. And I had to say at that point, completely disarmed, I can't cope. This is not something I can deal with. I need you. Some people need that sledgehammer, don't they? Taken to their life before they realise that actually we need to locate our sufficiency, we need to locate our strength in God and not in ourselves. Sometimes we have to put aside our armour, our weapons, our arguments, our battles, our belittling of each other. Sometimes we have to put aside our masks. I'm all right, don't, I'm fine, I've got no problems. God says, be disarmed, be calm. Ancient Israel had other options as well. We have options, don't we? Rather than being 
relying on God. We have options, and so did they. Let's just look at a couple of those. They could have relied on their own strengths. They could have said, hang on a minute, we can climb the walls, we've got ladders, let's get over these walls and into the city. And sometimes we can rely on our own qualifications, our own uh, abilities, on, on getting to know the right people to get forward, to get up the ladder, to get forward in the rat race. And there's nothing wrong with qualifications, there's nothing wrong with getting to know people, but if our dependence is on that and not on God, then we need to be disarmed. Ancient Israel could have said, let's just batter these walls down. We've got battering rams, that's an ancient instrument of war. Let's just push them over. Today, we can just jump straight into the argument, can't we? Particularly with people close to us, with people in our family perhaps. We can jump into the bitter argument, take up the, rake up things that happened in the past. We can go to work and try to push ourselves forward, which, ought to, which means pushing someone else down. We can cut people down with words, in arguments, in battles. And there's nothing wrong with stating our case clearly and calmly. There's nothing wrong with that. We need to be able to do that. But if we use words to cut people down, then we need to be disarmed of that. Thirdly, ancient Israel could have said, let's lay siege to the city. Let's just wait, and eventually they'll starve. Let's just wait. Sometimes we can say, let's just not talk to those people. They've upset me. They should come and apologize to me. Why should I speak to them? Particularly in families, in relatives, I think. And months turn into years, and we haven't spoken to somebody. Sometimes it might be right not to speak to somebody for a short period of time if some situation has just blown up. But if we're using a wall of silence, avoiding people because they've hurt us in the past or we feel they've hurt us and we're not prepared to speak about it, that's, that is actually a violent act. It's passive aggression, isn't it? If we're, if we're doing that, then we need to be disarmed. And probably all of us face situations of worry, of fear, of anxiety. You know, sometimes we're, we're awake at night, we're up early in the morning worrying about something. So much going on. So much going on for me at work. So much going on at church. It's easy to get worried and anxious about things. It's easy to curl up in a ball of fear, of worry, and tied up in a knot. And God says, be calm, be disarmed. Put aside all those arguments, those battles, those anxieties, those, those weapons, those, those insults, those comments that you have about other people. Be calm, be disarmed, and see what I will do. So don't fight the world using your own weapons is a message that we get from Joshua chapter 6 and repeatedly. God wants to disarm us, and that can hurt because we're laying aside what we rely on. We're laying aside, we're putting our confidence in something other than ourselves. But only then can we learn dependence, as many before us have done. Many Christians in the past, think about Newton, who was a slave trader, who needed to be disarmed on a ship crossing the ocean one day in a storm before he came to the Lord. Or, or Martin Luther, that there's been a lot about the, Re the Reformation this year, who again in a lightning storm cried out to God and said, you know, I'll believe in you if you get me out of this. Sometimes God has to put us in a difficult situation in order for us to lay aside our own weapons, our own armory. Are you fighting a situation this week, today, 
even. Somebody in your life who you've really fallen out with at work, at home, somebody who needs to be told. Or are you, is there someone who causes you great anger or anxiety at the moment? That can happen to any of us. Or are we just curled up in a ball of worry today because of things that are not right in our life? God would calm you and disarm you. Calm you and disarm you. But it's not easy. It's not easy to seek God's face in the middle of a difficult situation. It's not easy to seek God's face even when nothing's going wrong. We forget about him so easily. We forget about God so quickly. Stepping aside from our our default, our normal ways of dealing with situations and locating our strength in God is an unnatural thing to do sometimes, a difficult thing to do. Stepping aside from our, whatever we use, sarcasm, hurtful comments, silence, or just curling up in a ball of anxiety. It's difficult, if that's our operation, our our normal way of operating, it's difficult to step away from that. So then how can we, how can we practically mimic ancient Israel's attitude? How do we do that? How can we, in the situations we face, this month, this week, maybe today, be calm and disarmed? Well, there are many uh, answers to the question. I've picked a few. How can we be a non-anxious presence in stressful times? I've picked just a few things here. The first one is practicing gratitude as a discipline. Uh, it's so important to come to God with gratitude for thing, good things that have happened. There are always good things that have happened. Just think about all the t- accidents you haven't had, all the times you jumped out of that junction without looking, all the times you broke the speed limit and, and the accident didn't happen. Think about all the illnesses you haven't got. Go outside and look at the colour of that sky straight above us. There's no reason for that stunning colour to exist in this universe. The, the universe could be grey. Why not? There's no rational, no scientific, no evolutionary reason why good things should be there, but they are there. We need to give thanks for them. It's easy to come to God with a shopping list of everything that's wrong, isn't it? Because I'm, I'm worried about this, and I'm struggling about that, and what about my daughter and my son, and what about my parents? And God wants to hear those, but we start by coming to God with gratitude. I was really pleased... Uh, I remember writing about this three or four years ago, and about a year, a year ago, a sort of massive front-page article in The Telegraph, all about how gratitude is good for us. So even the world is catching up with the idea of, of gratitude, and it's biblical as well. God often associates peace and calm with being grateful. Paul writes um, to the Col- Colossians, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. What a lovely phrase. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts since as, since as members of one body you are called to peace and be thankful. And we often dis- don't read the last bit of the verse. It's important. Paul writes to the Philippians and Irene shared it this morning without knowing what we were going to talk about. Paul writes to the Philippians. Do not be worried or anxious about anything. But in all things by prayer and petition and with 
thanksgiving. Bring your requests to God, and then the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. We often think of the last part of that verse, Lord, give me the peace that passes all all understanding to guard my heart and mind, but the instructions for getting there, I'll bring your requests to God by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving. Paul often associates thanksgiving with peace. Now, I think that is his secret. He writes elsewhere about, I have found the secret of contented living. It's about being grateful. We could talk a lot more about any of these. Engaging in acts of kindness. If we can engage in acts of kindness, particularly to people who are different to us, who are marginalized, who are poor, God will do a transformational work in you. I'm sure Arthur can speak to that working in prisons. Some of you can speak to that working on Rebuild. Some of you can speak to that working uh, at, um, uh, what's it called, the cafe in Gorton. Oh, it's this. That when we're with different people, God, we think we're helping them, and we are, but God transforms our hearts in that process. Other ways of being calm and disarmed, taking time out from whatever it is that makes us react or curl up in a ball. It's important to take the odd evening off, to take the Sabbath off. I know what Alison's thinking now. She's thinking, well, you don't. (laughs) But I have things to learn as well about this. This is, you know, someone once told me at college that it's dishonorable, it's dishonoring to God to not take the Sabbath off. And I thought, what kind of planet do you live on? But now I realize it is. God has given us a rhythm for working and for resting. And it's important. Practice prayer and prayerfulness. Prayerfulness, again, we can talk about this, is just during the day, whatever we're doing, in the car, praying, just turning to God in the middle of the day, just turning our face to the Lord, as well as a a time of prayer, prayerfulness. Why is prayer is so important? I know it's obvious, but prayer is so important because if we've curled up in a ball of anxiety, of worry, if we've pulled down all the shutters of our life, if we've barricaded the door, and we're curled up, and we may have positioned uh, like snipers on the roof, hurtful comments that we've got ready to say to people, and everything's closed and tight and curled up. That's the only way that God can get in, is when you pray. If we're so tightly curled up and we've shut everything down, the only way that God can reach us is at that time of prayer. And one more, be part of a support structure. I'm not trying to do a hard sell of house groups, but being part in close fellowship with a small group and looser fellowship with a larger group is something that Christians have done and has helped Christians for many hundreds of years. And walls do come tumbling down. Walls do come tumbling down. There's once upon a time, there was a tiny river. And this tiny river said, I want to be a big river. I want to grow into a giant river. So the river found its way across the field and found a big rock. And the river thought, I'm not going to let this rock get in the way. I'm going to break through it. And the river pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and eventually found a way through the boulder and carried on. It was a bit bigger. Then the river came across a mountain and the river said, I'm not going to let this mountain get in the way. I want to be a big river. So the river pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed and eventually found a way around the mountain. The river carried on. It was getting bigger now. Found a forest with lots of trees in its way, and the river said, I'm not going to let this forest get in my way. I'm going to push and push and find my way through somehow, and it found a way through the forest. 
And then the river came across a desert that was hundreds of miles across. And the river said, I'm not going to let this sand get in my way. I'm going to get across. So the river pushed and pushed and pushed, but the sand was too great. There was too much sand. And partway across the desert, the river dried up, and all that was left was a few puddles. And then a voice from above said, why are you struggling in your own strength? Let me help you. And all the river could say was, here I am. And then the sun came out and lifted the river up into a cloud. And then the wind blew and blew that river right across the desert. But moreover, it then fell like rain, giving life to meadows, to fields, to plants and flowers, which it never imagined. When we, as disciples, locate the source of strength and sufficiency outside of ourselves, God can do amazing things that we never thought of. Let's pray. Perhaps as we just come to the end of this message, just bring to mind perhaps a situation or a person uh, that you're struggling with right now, at work, at home, at family, something that makes you anxious, something that makes you angry perhaps, something that's difficult. And I pray, may God calm you and disarm you. May God fight your battles for you. And may you always know that God is for you. Amen.